Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from My First Summer in the Sierra, published in 1911 and written by one of my absolute favourite figures in history. Listen to John Muir's account of his first summer in the Sierra High Plains. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest so they can have a productive day and achieve what it is they need to achieve. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to the listeners who were kind enough to leave a review this week. I'm glad that the podcast is helping. Laha Laha on iTunes UK. Granny Paula on iTunes US. Morgan E8677 on iTunes Canada. Thank you very much to each of you. My goal with this podcast is to help people everywhere get the good night's rest that they need, but I do need your help to do this. Please jump into iTunes or wherever you're listening. Subscribe and leave a review. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It's a really small thing, but it does help me reach people who need a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. My First Summer in the Sierra Chapter 1 Through the Foothills with a Flock of Sheep In the Great Central Valley of California, There are only two seasons, spring and summer. The spring begins with the first rainstorm, which usually falls in November. In a few months, the wonderful flowery vegetation is in full bloom, and by the end of May it is dead and dry and crisp as if every plant had been roasted in an oven. Then the lolling, panting flocks and herds are driven to the high, cool, green pastures of the Sierra. I was longing for the mountains about this time, but money was scarce and I couldn't see how a bread supply was to be kept up. While I was anxiously brooding on the bread problem, so troublesome to wanderers, and trying to believe that I might learn to live like the wild animals, gleaning nourishment here and there from seeds, berries, etc., sauntering and climbing in joyful independence of money, 
or baggage. Mr. Delaney, a sheep owner, for whom I had worked a few weeks, called on me and offered to engage me to go with his shepherd and flock to the headwaters of Merced and Tulum rivers, the very region I had most in mind. I was in the mood to accept work of any kind that would take me into the mountains whose treasures I had tasted last summer in the Yosemite region. The flock, he explained, would be moved gradually higher through the successive forest belts as the snow melted, stopping for a few weeks at the best places we came to. These, I thought, would be good centres of observation, from which I might be able to make many telling excursions within a radius of eight or ten miles of the camps to learn something from the plants, animals and rocks. For he assured me that I should be left perfectly free to follow my studies. I judged, however, that I was in no way the right man for the place, and freely explained my shortcomings, confessing that I was wholly unacquainted with the topography of the upper mountains, the streams that would have to be crossed, and the wild sheep-eating animals, etc. In short, that, what with bears, coyotes, rivers, canyons, and thorny, bewildering chaparral, I feared that half or more of his flock would be lost. Fortunately, these shortcomings seemed insignificant to Mr. Delaney, the main thing he said was to have a man about the camp whom he could trust to see that the shepherd did his duty and he assured me that the difficulties that seemed so formidable at a distance would vanish as we went on, encouraging me further by saying that the shepherd would do all the herding, that I could study plants and rocks and scenery as much as I liked, and that he would himself accompany us to the first main camp and make occasional visits to our higher ones to replenish our store of provisions and see how we prospered. Therefore, I concluded to go, though still fearing, when I saw the silly sheep bouncing one by one through the narrow gate of the home corral to be counted, that of the two thousand and fifty many would never return. I was fortunate in getting a fine St. Bernard dog for a companion.
his master, a hunter with whom I was slightly acquainted, came to me as soon as he heard that I was going to spend the summer in the Sierra and begged me to take his favourite dog, Carlo, with me, for he feared that if he were compelled to stay all summer on the plains, the fierce heat might be the death of him. I think I can trust you to be kind to him, he said. I am sure he will be good to you. He knows all about the mountain animals, will guard the camp, assist in managing the sheep, and in every way be found able and faithful. Carlo knew we were talking about him, watched our faces, and listened so attentively that I fancied he understood us. Calling him by name, I asked him if he was willing to go with me. He looked me in the face with eyes, expressing wonderful intelligence, then turned to his master, and after permission was given by a wave of the hand toward me, and a farewell padding caress, he quietly followed me as if he perfectly understood all that had been said and had known me always. June 3rd, 1869 This morning provisions, camp, kettles, blankets, plant press, etc. were packed on two horses, the flock headed for the tawny foothills, and away we sauntered in a cloud of dust. Mr. Delaney, bony and tall, with sharply hacked profile like Don Quixote, leading the pack horses Billy, the proud shepherd, a Chinaman and a digger Indian, to assist in driving for the first few days in the brushy foothills, and myself with a notebook tied to my belt. The home ranch which we set out is on the south side of the Tulum River, near French Bar, where the foothills of metamorphic gold-bearing slates dip below the stratified deposits of the Central Valley. We had not gone more than a mile before some of the old leaders of the flock showed by the eager, inquiring way they ran and looked ahead that they were thinking of the high pastures they had enjoyed last summer. Soon the whole flock seemed to be hopefully excited, the mothers calling their lambs, the lambs replying in tones wonderfully human, their fondly quavering calls interrupted now and then, by hastily snatched mouthfuls of withered grass. 
amid all this seeming babel of bars, as they steamed over the hills, every mother and child recognised each other's voice. In case a tired lamb half asleep in the smothering dust should fail to answer, its mother would come running back through the flock toward the spot whence its last response was heard and refused to be comforted until she found it, the one of a thousand, though to our eyes and ears they all seemed alike. The flock travelled at a rate of about a mile an hour, outspread in the form of an irregular triangle, about a hundred yards wide at the base, and a hundred and fifty yards long, with a crooked, ever-changing point made up the strongest foragers called the leaders, which, with the most active of those scattered along the ragged sides of the main body, hastily explored nooks in the rocks and bushes for grass and leaves. The lambs and feeble old mothers dawdling in the rear were called the tail end. About noon, the heat was hard to bear. The poor sheep panted pitifully and tried to stop in the shade of every tree they came to, while we gazed with eager longing through the dim burning glare toward the snowy mountains and streams, though not one was in sight. The landscape is only wavering foothills, roughened here and there, with bushes and trees and outcropping masses of slate. The trees, mostly the blue oak, are about 30 to 40 feet high, with pale blue-green leaves and white bark, sparsely planted on the thinnest soil or in crevices of rocks beyond the reach of grass fires. The slates in many places rise abruptly through the tawny grass in sharp lichen-covered slabs, like tombstones in deserted burying grounds. With the exception of the oak and four or five species of manzanita and cenothus, the vegetation of the foothills is mostly the same as that of the plains. I saw this region in the early spring, when it was a charming landscape garden full of birds and bees and flowers. Now the scorching weather makes everything dreary. The ground is full of cracks, lizards glide about on the rocks, and ants in amazing numbers, whose tiny sparks of life only burn the brighter with the heat, fairly quiver with unquenchable energy
as they run in long lines to fight and gather food, how it comes that they do not dry to a crisp in a few seconds exposure to sun fire is marvellous. A few rattlesnakes lie coiled in, out-of-the-way places, but are seldom seen. Magpies and crows, usually so noisy, are silent now, standing in mixed flocks on the ground beneath the best shade trees, with bills wide open and wings drooped, too breathless to speak. The quails are also trying to keep in the shade, about the few tepid alkaline water holes. Cottontail rabbits are running from shade to shade, among the cenothus brush, and occasionally the long-eared hare is seen cantering gracefully across the wider openings. After a short noon rest in a grove, the poor dust-choked flock was again driven ahead over the brushy hills, but the dim roadway we had been following faded away just where it was most needed, compelling us to stop to look about us and get our bearings. The Chinamen seemed to think we were lost, and chatted in pidgin English concerning the abundance of little stick, while the Indians silently scanned the billowy ridges and gulches for openings. Pushing through the thorny jungle, we at length discovered a road trending toward Colterville, which we followed until an hour before sunset, when we reached a dry ranch and camped for the night. Camping in the foothills with a flock of sheep is simple and easy, but far from pleasant. The sheep were allowed to pick what they could find in the neighbourhood until after sunset, watched by the shepherd while the others gathered wood, made a fire, cooked, unpacked and fed the horses, etc. About dusk the weary sheep were gathered on the highest open spot near camp, where they willingly bunched close together, and after each mother had found her lamb and suckled it, all lay down and required no attention until morning. Supper was announced by the call grub. Each with a tin plate helped himself direct from the pots and pans, while chatting about such camp studies as sheep feed, mines, coyotes, bears or adventurers during the memorable gold days of pay dirt. The Indian kept in the background, never saying a word, as if he belonged to another species. The meal finished, the dogs were fed, 
the smokers smoked the fire, and under the influences of the fullness and tobacco, the calm that settled on their faces seemed almost divine. Something like the mellow, meditative glow portrayed on the countenances of saints. Then suddenly, as if awakening from a dream, each with a sigh or a grunt knocked the ashes out of his pipe, yawned, gazed at the fire a few moments, and then said, Well, I believe I'll turn in, and straight away vanished beneath his blankets. The fire smouldered and flickered an hour or two longer. The stars shone brighter. Coyotes and owls stirred the silence here and there, while crickets and hylas made a cheerful, continuous music, so fitting and full that it seemed a part of the very body of the night. The only discordance came from a snoring sleeper and the coughing sheep with dust in their throats. In the starlight, the flock looked like a big, grey blanket. The camp was a stir at daybreak. Coffee, bacon and beans formed the breakfast, followed by quick dishwashing and packing. A general bleeding began about sunrise. As soon as a mother ewe arose, her lamb came bounding and bunting for its breakfast, and after the thousand youngsters had been suckled, the flock began to nibble and spread. The restless weathers with ravenous appetites were the first to move, but dared not to go far from the main body. Billy and the Indian and the Chinaman kept them headed along the weary road and allowed them to pick up what little they could find on a breadth of about a quarter of a mile. But as several flocks had already gone ahead of us, scarce a leaf green or dry, was left, therefore, the starving flock had to be hurried on over the bare, hot hills to the nearest of the green pastures, about twenty or thirty miles from here. The pack animals were led by Don Quixote, a heavy rifle over his shoulder intended for bears and wolves, This day had been as hot and dusty as the first, leading over a gently sloping brown hills with mostly the same vegetation, excepting the strange-looking Sabine pines, which here forms small groves or is scattered among the blue oaks. The trunk divides at a height of the 15 or 20 feet into two or more stems, outleaning or nearly upright, 
with many straggling branches and long grey needles, casting but little shade. In general appearance, this tree looks more like a palm than a pine. The cones are about six or seven inches long, about five in diameter, very heavy and last long after they fall, so that the ground beneath the trees is covered with them. They make fine, resiny, light-giving campfires, next to ears of Indian corn, the most beautiful fuel I've ever seen. The nuts, the Don tells me, are gathered in large quantities by the Digger Indians for food. They are about as large and hard-shelled as hazelnuts, food and fire fit for the gods from the same fruit. On the morning of June 5th, a few hours after setting out with the crawling sheep cloud, we gained the summit of the first well-defined bench on the mountain flank at Pino Blanco. The Sabine pines interest me greatly. They are so airy and strangely palm-like I was eager to sketch them, and was in a fever of excitement without accomplishing much. I managed to halt long enough, however, to make a tolerably fair sketch of Pino Blanco Peak from the southwest side, where there is a small field and vineyard irrigated by a stream that makes a pretty fall on its way down a gorge by the roadside. After gaining the open summit on this first bench, feeling the natural exhilaration due to the slight elevation of a thousand feet or so, and the hopes excited concerning the outlook to be obtained, a magnificent section of the Merced Valley at what is called Horseshoe Bend came full in sight, a glorious wilderness that seemed to be calling with a thousand songful voices, bold, down-sweeping slopes, feathered with pines and clumps of manzanita with sunny, open spaces between them, make up most of the foreground, the middle and background present fold beyond fold of finely moulded hills and ridges rising into mountain-like masses in the distance, all covered with a shaggy growth of chaparral, mostly adestoma, planted so marvellously close and even that it looks like soft, rich, plush without a single tree or bare spot. As far as the eye can reach, it extends a heaving, swelling sea of green, as regular and continuous as that produced by the heaths of Scotland.
The sculpture of the landscape is as striking in its main lines as in its lavish richness of detail. A grand congregation of massive heights with the river shining between them each carved into smooth, graceful folds without leaving a single rocky angle exposed as if the delegate fluting and ridging fashioned out of metamorphic slates had been carefully sandpapered. The whole landscape showed design like man's noblest sculptures. How wonderful the power of its beauty. Gazing or stricken, I might have left everything for it. Glad endless work would then be mine, tracing the forces that have brought forth its features, its rocks and plants and animals and glorious weather. Beauty beyond thought everywhere, beneath, above, made and being made forever. I gazed and gazed and longed and admired until the dusty sheep and packs were far out of sight, made hurried notes and a sketch, though there was no need of either, for the colours and lines and expression of this divine landscape countenance are so burned into my mind and heart they surely can never grow dim. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you enjoyed that book. If you would like to listen to another episode, please do. I will be bringing you a new episode very soon. And in the meantime, good night.